We are in Hebrews. I want you to open up in your books, in your Bibles, I should say, to Hebrews chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 19. And uh, as a way of introduction, I just want to do a quick reminder of where we have come thus far in the first two chapters. Okay, so uh, the author of Hebrews is speaking to a people that is thinking about walking away, turning away from their faith in Jesus Christ. So they are currently Christians, those who have embraced Christ, who He is and what He has done, relied upon Him, and yet in the midst of a world that is placing so much pressure on them and giving so much other voice to the way life should be lived, the way uh, knowing and loving God should be considered, uh, they are struggling. They're, they're, they're considering walking away. There is a competing voice in their life saying, walk away from Jesus, give up. And I think for us in 2016, I think we can easily connect with that. That there are pressures of today, situational, financial, uh, cultural, societal pressures, competing voices that would woo us away, that would call us away and have us walk away from the Christ we have embraced. And so I want to ask you the question this morning, is that where you are today? Do you feel that pressure? Or maybe as you consider the last three months, six months, two years of your life, have you seen an unexplainable kind of walking farther away from God? Maybe there's something in you that's causing skepticism. You're asking questions that you've never asked before. Maybe you're second-guessing your faith in God. Is that where you are today? Do you feel that tension? I think we all feel that tension in the world in which we live. But I want to ask a follow-up question. What keeps you from doing so? What is it that motivates you to remain faithful? What is it that motivates you to keep your faith in Christ? You see, the author is arguing week in, week out, passage in, passage out, verse in and verse out arguing, pleading, giving reason for us to not give up, to keep our faith in Christ no matter what this world deals us. Today he gives us great reason, great motive to stay faithful to Jesus. So today, if you feel yourself weakening, if you feel yourself questioning doubting, or turning ever so slowly, maybe subtly, away from your faith in Jesus, the author of Hebrews is going to encourage you. The author of Hebrews is going to speak to a foundational motive for faithfulness. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 19. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. 
the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house, has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that would be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. We are His house. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the day of rebellion. On the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for forty years. Therefore I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was He provoked for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned? Whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did He swear that they would not enter His rest? But to those who were disobedient. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. This is the Word of God. And all God's people said, Amen. The command is very simple. And I think a passage like this calls for going directly to it. Consider Jesus. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. That's not a command that has superficial connotation. That is, think about it. If you're bored and you've got nothing else to do, just let it run through your mind superficially on the surface. That word, consider Jesus, is one that in its root sense is to grasp or comprehend something on the basis of careful thought. On the basis of very well thought out reasoning. Faith is not a leap, friends. Faith is reason. 
There's evidence. He's saying, consider Jesus. Give yourself over to thinking about Jesus. Reason with it. Wrestle with it. Think deeply about it. Jesus. Actually, the verb that is used here is really one that intensifies that original meaning of thinking something through with careful thought. It literally intensifies that to this. Direct your whole mind and attention on the object. So when he says, consider Jesus, he's saying with great intensity, direct your whole mind, your whole person, your whole pattern of thought continually in the consideration of Jesus Christ. But something specific, he says, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him, who appointed him. So while he's saying direct your whole mind and attention upon Jesus, he's saying something specific about Jesus that he wants our mind to think about. And it's his faithfulness. Consider Jesus, who was faithful to him who appointed him. He doesn't just want you to think about Jesus in general, at least in this passage. He wants you to consider, direct your whole mind upon Jesus in his faithfulness. Faithfulness is this a promise was made, a promise was kept. That is, Jesus is faithful. He wants you to consider His faithfulness in who He is. Look at what He says. He's the Apostle and High Priest of our confession. Consider the faithfulness of Jesus in who He is. He is the Apostle and High Priest of our confession. Those are big words. Let's talk about it for a minute. Apostle really is the one who has been sent by God to represent God to man. That's what Jesus is. Jesus is the one that was sent from God to represent God and speak for God to man. Remember, that's what we said in the opening verses of this book. right? God spoke to our fathers by the prophets long ago, but in these last days He has spoken to us in His Son, right? He is the Apostle, the one sent by God to us to speak on behalf of God. He's saying He has done this faithfully. And He is faithful as the High Priest. He is not just the one that represents God to man. He is the one that represents man in the presence of God. He is a faithful representative of God. He is a faithful representative of man to God. Do you see that? He's the high priest. He is the apostle. And he is faithfully such. And this is central to our understanding of the gospel message. His faithfulness as the apostle, his faithfulness as the high priest is essential to our understanding of the good news of Jesus Christ. 
That is a conversation that I had this week. I had it twice, actually. One to a married couple, one to an individual. We're talking about the wonderful nature of the gospel and the fact that really what Jesus has done is He has given us a relationship, a living, organic, organic relationship, deep connection in union with God. We can know God. We can love God. We can enjoy God. That's what you were made for. That's what you've been remade for. To know, to love, and to worship God. But you cannot know and love and worship God in sin. That, that, that sin has separated us from knowing, loving, and serving God. But you see, Jesus comes into the equation, and He is the one sent by God to represent God to man, and He is the one that represents us to God as our high priest. And we see that the way in which we have relationship with God, where we can know Him, and love Him, enjoy Him, and worship Him, is through Jesus. Consider the faithfulness of Jesus that gives us reconciliation and access to God. So if you want to know God, you go through Jesus, the one who is faithful as our high priest and faithful as the apostle. But not only that, consider Jesus in His faithfulness in what He has accomplished. In that upper room discourse in John. That high priestly prayer that Jesus gives. He says to the Father, I have glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Jesus was faithful in a unique way to fulfill all of God's promises, to carry out all of God's purposes, to save us from our sin in His death on a cross. Jesus is faithful in what He has accomplished. And we know those powerful words on the cross where He is about to give up His Spirit and He says, it is finished. Have you considered the faithfulness of Jesus in who He is and what He has done? That's what the author of Hebrews is trying to get us to do. Consider the faithfulness of Jesus in comparison to the faithfulness of Moses. Right? Consider the faithfulness of Jesus in comparison to the faithfulness of Moses. He goes on to say that his faithfulness is just as Moses was faithful in all of God's house. Right there he's speaking to a people that, that loved Moses, that, that treasured Moses, that if the people of the Hebrews that were reading this book, if there's one thing they did is they saw Moses as their spiritual superhero. Right? They look back at Moses as one that led them out of Egypt into the promised land. They looked at Moses as the one who represented God to the people and who represented the people to God. He looked at Moses as the one who spoke on behalf of God as a prophet. They looked at Moses as the one who had received the law and gave the law to the people of Israel. When it comes to spiritual superheroes, to those that were reading this text, guess who was at the top of the list? 
Moses. And so it is a significant thing for him to say that Jesus was faithful to who appointed him just as Moses was faithful in all of God's house. That's a significant statement. But he goes on to say something even more shocking and significant. He says this, that Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. That there's something about the glory of Moses. There, I'm sorry. There's something about the glory of Jesus. There's something about the, the faithfulness of Jesus that is superior. That is more glorious, more honorable than the dignity, the honor, and the glory of Moses. And, you know, these people most likely in this time were questioning, where does Jesus stand in all of this, to what extent do we give our lives to Him? Maybe we should go back to Moses. After all, Numbers 12, 7, when Miriam and Aaron questioned the, the dignity and honor of Moses, that's really where this is coming from, right? The, the, who is this guy, man? Maybe he's not the guy, basically, in the midst of this, this awful situation, and the Lord confronts Miriam. The Lord confronts Aaron and says, Moses has been faithful in all my house. He's been faithful. So the author of Hebrews in no way is minimizing the dignity and the honor of Moses. Matter of fact, he's reinforcing it. But what he's doing by way of comparison and really contrast is saying that when we're talking about the faithfulness and the glory and the service of Jesus, we're talking about something far more superior than even your highest spiritual superhero. That really, you're not to question the superiority and the faithfulness of Jesus at all. That there will be consequences for doing so. So, consider Jesus in His faithfulness. It's of more glory and more honor than Moses. Just as the builder of a house has more glory than the house itself. Anybody here heard of Frank Lloyd Wright? Right? He's designed many a home. He had this particular architecture that kind of weaved in the natural world and tried to kind of minimize the difference in the space and kind of incorporated an organic architecture, as it was called. If you've driven around Syracuse, you may interact with some of his homes. A lot of ones actually in the outer university area uh, that, that show that. And so there's, there's these homes that are beautiful and people get to look at them and, and talk about them. And you can even buy them uh, at a great price, actually. But really, what makes them what they are is not just looking at the house. What gives them the glory and the status and the price, the superiority of the value, is not the house itself, but the one who designed it and made it. The builder. The builder always gets more glory than the house itself. And so what he's saying here is the reason that Jesus gets more glory than Moses is because he is a part of the building process of the house of God. Moses was simply a servant in the midst of it, right? That Moses was faithful as a servant in God's house, but Jesus is faithful as the builder, as the son who is over God's house. That it's similar but superior in its glory. So they cannot turn away to their spiritual superhero and base their faithfulness to God upon a mere servant, a mere man. But they're to base their faithfulness, their 
continued uh, obedience and trust in Jesus on the faithfulness of Jesus Himself and no one else. I think that's a poignant word for us today. That while we may not be looking to Moses and saying, man, he's way better than Jesus. Raise your hand if you're looking to Moses and saying, listen man, I say we walk away from this Jesus thing and just go back to Moses. Anybody struggling with that this morning? No. No. Right? That's a very unique thing here, but relevant for us as we think about the fact that all too often, we as the church are basing our faithfulness on the faithfulness of a mere man. And when that man or woman shows himself to be unfaithful or unfitting, or we question their credibility, guess what happens to our faith? We begin to question and doubt and struggle. That we begin to base our faithfulness on the faithfulness of another person, another human being. And that's exactly what he's saying. Don't look to Moses. He's just a servant in the house of God. Look to Jesus. Consider His faithfulness in who He is and what He has accomplished to be the motive for your continued faithfulness. Can't help but think of historic figures and pastors and religious leaders that have fallen. Maybe there's no need to mention them by name. We are probably going through a Rolodex of people that we've looked to and said, man, look at how great they are. Look at how awesome their preaching is. Look at how vast and numerous their ministry has gone. Look how amazing they are. This motivates me to be great too. That our faith and our trust in Jesus is all too often connected to the faithfulness of a human being. Am I tracking with anybody now? And that when we see human beings be what they are, unfaithful, just like Moses, by the way, all too often, who did not have the opportunity to enter the rest of God in the promised land because what? Of his own sin. We're not to base our faithfulness on the faithfulness or the lack of faithfulness of a mere human being, a servant in the house of God. Is there someone you follow more than Jesus on Twitter? Man, did you hear John Piper's sermon? Man, did you hear this? You're getting my point. We look to the faithfulness of men, the inspiration of men, and we connect ourselves too closely to them. And when their faith goes shipwrecked, guess what happens to our faith? Shipwrecked. What he's saying is, listen, you cannot consider someone more superior or glorious more than Christ. Consider Him. Consider His faithfulness. Consider His faithfulness in relationship to the faithfulness and glory of Moses, who is worth mentioning, but not worth relying upon for our own faithfulness. Right? Jesus is the faithful one over God's house as a son. And we are His house if indeed we hold fast in our confidence and our boasting and our hope. You see, it is the faithfulness of Jesus that motivates our faithfulness. So I'm asking the question if you're feeling weary, if you're thinking about walking away, 
if the pressures of 2016 have gone too far and have, and have gone into conflict with your values and you're, you're so, slowly and subtly being deceived and you're walking away and your heart is hardened and what, if that's happening to you, is it because you have not for quite some time sat and meditated upon the faithfulness of Christ in who He is and what He has accomplished? Has your faith been attached to something else other than His faithfulness to you? Consider Jesus. It's His faithfulness that is the motivation for our own faithfulness. You know what? I think oftentimes we've experienced this, right? There have been times in our faith where we've been struggling, we've been discouraged, we've been exhausted, we've thought about giving up on God. And then it's considering the goodness and the faithfulness of Jesus, His death, His love, His mercy and His work that draws us back in and we say, you know what? Because of Christ, because of His goodness, because He continues to be faithful to me, I will not give up. I will not walk away from Him. How could I? He has never walked away from me. Faithfulness in us is an appropriate response to the faithfulness of Jesus. Right? The root of our faithfulness is the faithfulness of Jesus. But the fruit of that faithfulness being embraced is our own. Right? We are His house. That is, God lives in us. Ephesians chapter 2 says that we are very much growing into a holy temple in which God dwells. God does not live in a building. This is just a rectangle that is gray. It is not the house of God. But you as the people of God are the very ones in which He dwells. You're the house of God. Those who have embraced the faithfulness of Christ and are now persevering in being faithful to Him. We are His house if we indeed hold fast our confidence and our boasting in hope. Do not let go of your confidence in Jesus. Hold fast to it. It's His faithfulness. Not the faithfulness of Moses. Not the faithfulness of any ministry. Not the faithfulness of any man in this world. The faithfulness of Jesus is your motivation. Amen? But there's also another motivation. The consequences of unfaithfulness. If you look at the next section, verses 7 through 19, we're really given a warning. First, a reminder of the faithfulness of Jesus and who He is and what He's done. But then we're given a a, a warning about what happens if we are not faithful. And the author of Hebrews goes right to Psalm 95, which is really uh, talking about Exodus 17, the day of testing at Massa, Mirabah, right? We're Exodus 17. Here we are back to the, to the leadership of Moses in the midst of the people of God. Where the people are furious. Right after seeing the parting of the Red Sea, right after all the miracles, the people say, listen, 
we're done with this. We're going back to Egypt. You stink. Because there's no food and there's no water. Could you imagine being on the other side of the plagues and the miracles and literally the next chapter saying, I'm done with this. Let's go back to Egypt where there's food and water. It's such a picture of us, is it not? Our tendency, the propensity of our heart. He says to these people, listen, today if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the day of rebellion. I was provoked with that generation. I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. You see that when we stop considering the faithfulness of Jesus, our heart begins to grow hard and cold and it then leads to unbelief and unbelief leads to removal from the potential of entering into the Sabbath rest of God. There are consequences for unfaithfulness. That also motivates in us faithfulness. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. Verse 15, as in the rebellion. Those people, right, led by Moses out of Egypt, those were the people that did not get to enter the rest of God. But for 40 years they wandered. And God kept them, even Moses, from entering into that Sabbath rest. And so what He's saying to them in Psalm 95, and what He's saying to us today, 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 while it is still called today, do not harden your hearts as in the day of rebellion. Why would He say that? Because it is our very propensity. It is the nature of our sinful, fleshly heart to harden itself apart from the gracious work of God to apply His faithfulness to our life. Your heart in your own strength and on your own, apart from the work of God, will harden itself. That's what it will do. And so He's warning them. Listen, you're thinking about quitting. You're thinking about living in a way that is unfaithful to Jesus. Don't do that because that is the very road to a hard heart. That is a very road to losing the rest of God you crave. Don't do that. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The promise of Christ. You've got to come to Christ. You've got to stay faithful to Christ. You've got to consider Christ to have rest. So to walk away from Him is to walk down a path that leads you to the lack of rest. So what do we do? What do we do if the consequences of unfaithfulness are that we will no longer experience the blessing of God to give us His rest? What do we do? He says very simply, take care brothers. Lest there be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Take care. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. A very clear statement. Take care, brothers. Take care, brothers. Lest there be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart. You see, when I look at that statement, I begin to see another mechanism to motivate faithfulness in us. And it's the church of God. That really there's no room for isolated, individualistic Christianity. That to isolate ourselves from one another 
is literally to make a decision to fall away from the living God. That God is so connected to His people that He indwells His house. That to to stay connected to God is to stay connected to His people. And to stay connected to His people is to stay connected to to their God. That there's really no room for a suburban spirituality in the Christian life. That will preach for us. That there's no room for a spirituality that embraces something on its own and literally, in a spiritual sense, drives into its garage, shuts the door, and cuts itself off from the people around them. That builds up fences in their yard for quote-unquote privacy. That stops sitting on the front porch and begins to live their life on the back deck, cut off from other people in a spiritual sense. Who smiles for other people. Everything is good. We're just really busy. Kind of spirituality. I think many of us wrestle with this. We struggle with this. Some of you admittedly. That I love Jesus. And I'm going to love Jesus just fine on my own. Thank you very much. I don't need someone else's voice or influence in my life. To remain faithful. But the author of Hebrews is very clear. Take care brothers. Lest there be in any one of you. He's talking to the church. He's talking to the people. He's saying, you all take care that, to make sure that there's no one among you that has an evil and unbelieving heart. That it's not about your individual little worship with Jesus. That really, the command here is about making sure because we share in Christ, we share in a union with Christ, that our whole life is oriented to making sure that our brothers and sisters in the Lord are not falling away from the living God. I don't think we take that seriously enough. I don't think we really heed the warnings. I know that I'm struggling as I just moved into a suburban life. I'm struggling to remember that my house is not a simply a place of refuge from other people. That it is a place of hospitality to include sinners. It is a place of hospitality to encourage and exhort other people in the faith. That is why we have that house. Do you see that in your life? See, this exhortation, he's like, listen, take care. Lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that leads you to fall away from the living God. He says, the opposite is this. Not falling away from the living God means this. Exhorting one another. That means... We give everyone the gospel right to speak into our lives. And guess what? We have the right to speak into others' lives. Not judgmentally, not without sensitivity, that's not what I'm saying. As a matter of fact, if you take a look at the word exhort, it actually has gospel-centered meaning. That the word of exhortation, that when exhortation is communicated throughout the Scriptures, it's always tied very closely to people who are instructing or reminding people of their hope in the saving work of Jesus. So what he's saying there is this, exhort one another. What he's saying is this, constantly get in front of other believers and gospel one another all the time. Remind each other of the saving work of Jesus. 
Remind him of his redemption. Remind him where he has brought us. Remember the people of Israel? Exodus 17. We want to go back. Do you not remember where we came from? Do you not remember where God brought us and how he brought us here? That's what we need to do in our lives with one another. We need to get together. We need to be face to face. We need to send text messages, emails. Yes, but we need to be in front of each other and look at one another and give each other the kind of gospel access that says, don't forget about Jesus. Consider Jesus in his faithfulness. Let you continue to remain faithful in your life. Don't fall away from the living God. Consider the faithfulness of Jesus in what he has done. That's what exhortation means. Not just some moral, ethical appeal like, hey, do a better job, man. We've got enough of that in the church. Dude, how come you weren't there? Don't you love Jesus? The guilt, that's not what he's saying. He's saying, get together and remind each other of the saving work of Jesus. The faithfulness of Jesus. Because it's the faithfulness of Jesus that motivates our own faithfulness. Not some guilt-ridden demand. It's the faithfulness of Jesus. That's what exhortation is. Speaking into someone else's life and saying, listen, let me remind you what God has done in your life. Let me remind you of the promises He's made and the promises that He's kept. It's intentional. Take care. It's reciprocal. Give and receive this exhortation. Some of you say, well, I'm actually doing okay. I don't really think I need someone speaking into my life. Matter of fact, I got a, my mom, we get together on Tuesdays and we pray for one another. That's great. Praise Jesus. Keep doing that. But what I'm trying to say is this. It's not just about your individual consumer needs. You may need to show up and be bored out of your mind because someone else needs an exhortation from your lips. It's not just about you. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart. You say, well, you know, I don't really want to go to small group. It's kind of boring. You know, the way we do missional community and, you know, when we get together for corporate worship, it's just not as exciting. It doesn't really do much for me. Maybe that's where you're at. But again, I challenge you. That's not why you're here. You're not here to be, ex to be like, have fun and be entertained. That's not why you're here. Right? It, this isn't entertainment. This is worship. And really, uh, my heart would be that each and every one of us takes seriously our need, the necessity, and our privilege of coming together for corporate worship. That that should just be a non-negotiable part of our life. That it should never be messed with. Is that fair? That it should be in our calendar. That 99% of the time that we are present in corporate worship, that missional community, whenever it fits or within reason, should be a non-negotiable part of our life. That formation groups should be something that we're trying really hard to be a part of. Right? All the context that we've created here. Let me be very clear. We have not created corporate worship. We have not created missional communities. We have not established formation groups because we really like to mobilize and organize people. That's not why. We're not trying to just pad stats. When we advertise these things, we're not up here motivated to see how many people we can get in a room to hear us talk. That is not our motivation. Can we be clear about that? 
The thing that's most tragic and saddening for me as a pastor, when people begin to be less consistent in corporate worship, when they begin to schedule their lives outside of corporate worship, they begin to make adjustments in such a way that they're no longer able to participate in missional community. There's no margin in their life for a formation group. And please, I'm not trying to speak insensitively to the real struggles that you face. But let me make this clear. The thing that's most saddening to me as an elder is the potential that your lack of engagement with biblical Christian community will lead you to fall away from the living God. That scares me. And that's why corporate worship is pivotal. It's central. Because God deserves your worship, but because you need to be around other Christians. You need to be reminded of the work of Jesus. You cannot exist spiritually for long until you find yourselves years down the road. How did I get here? As you're led away by the deceitfulness of sin. That's my fear for our people. When you're not here, I, I want to give the benefit of the doubt. I do. I was like, well, you know. But there's something in my spirit that says, at least praise, Lord, may they not be falling away from you. May they not be being led away by the deceitfulness of sin. That's a real spiritual reality. This is a biblical warning. Rooted in the saving work of God. I'm not telling you to come here, come here telling you to come because of the necessity of exhortation in your life. You can't live in your faith without constant encouragement and exhortation in the gospel. You will fall away. There is no third way. Well, maybe I'll try this way. That way won't work. Let me warn you. It, you will fall away apart from the people of God that are exhorting you. Have I, have I beat that horse enough? I could not be more concerned. Listen, I know everyone, not everyone that comes here has the right motive. Not everyone is motivated by the gospel. Just because you're here doesn't mean that you're doing the right thing per se. That it's holy and acceptable, just checking off the box. So that's not what I'm advocating for. But what I am saying is that if you're not here regularly and consistently, if you have no lifeline like a missional community, if you are not being spoken to concerning the gospel, and if you're not speaking into someone else's life concerning the gospel, people are falling away from the living God. That's what the text is saying. And that's the scariest reason. And that's why we ask for wholehearted commitment to these things because exhorting one another every day as long as it is called today is the only antidote to the poison of the deceitful heart. So consider Jesus in such a way to motivate your own faithfulness to Jesus. Examine your life, your commitment, your calendar. Right? Take care. That means not willy-nilly. Take care. Be intentional. Lest there be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart causing you to fall away from the living God. Because the consequences of falling away means that we will not enter His rest. That falling away from God reveals that we've never really understood the faithfulness of God at all. 
that to receive the faithfulness of God, to appropriate the saving benefits of the faithfulness of Christ, is to now live that out in our own faithfulness. And living that out in our own faithfulness means that we are unwavering, unchanging in our commitment to one another in the body of Christ. To speak the Gospel every day. You say, well, how many times? Every day. Well, that seems extreme. The consequences of unfaithfulness are very extreme. So therefore, the remedy must be equally extreme. Exhort one another every day. Well, how long am I supposed to do this? Is this like a six-week course? No, as long as it is called today. That none of you may be led away by the deceitfulness of sin. Feel the weight of that call. Grab your iPhone. Make changes in your calendar. Talk to your boss. I can't do this anymore. Please, can you free me up? Because this really means a lot to me, my faith. Take care. Lest any one of you be led away by the deceitfulness of sin. Exhort one another, right? That the church of God and the consequences of sin that we remind you of is a motivation for faithfulness. Christ's faithfulness motivates ours. Amen? Don't give up. Don't give up. God is at work in your life. If there's one way to describe the way in which God has related to me in the 37 years of my existence, when I stop thinking about the temporal moments, it's this. He is faithful. Great is thy faithfulness, O God. Great is thy faithfulness. Can you say that? Can you look back on your life and look back all the way to the cross? And can you, can you conclude anything other than, He is faithful to me. Therefore, I will be faithful to Him. Every day. As long as it is called today. No matter how hard it is. No matter how intense the pressure to be unfaithful. I will be faithful. And here's the deal. And you will lay in bed at night like I do. And you will think about this truth. I'm not faithful. I'm not perfectly faithful. I often think about that. That I gave my life. I prayed about this Lord. I did my best to serve you and honor you. I, I prayed through my motives. I did everything you asked me to do. But man, there was that one moment where I lost it for a millisecond and it seemed to be the moment where everything is overshadowed by that one act of unfaithfulness. And I lay in bed at night often and say, man, I'm not being faithful. And guess what? It wearies me when I think about my unfaithfulness. When I think about my imperfect obedience, it wearies me. Does it weary you? I'm not perfect, God. I'm not always faithful, God. I just humbly admit it. But you know what? What keeps me going in the midst of recognizing the exhaustion of my own imperfect faithfulness? His faithfulness. Right? It's His faithfulness. That while my obedience is imperfect, 
Guess whose obedience is perfect? Christ's. His obedience is perfect. So if you're feeling the weight of that, just trust and rest in the faithfulness of Jesus to cover your imperfect obedience. And know that He who began a good work in you will be what? Faithful to complete it. That when you stand before Christ someday, the faithful one will look at you and say, well done, good and faithful servant. The one who is faithful as a son over the house of God will look at you and say, well done, good and faithful servant. And you'll say, yeah, but I wasn't perfect and faithful. he say, I know, but my faithfulness is that which you rested and trusted in and it covers you. And it's enough. May the faithfulness of Jesus motivate you to your own faithfulness. And all God's people said, Amen. It was a quick ending. Let's pray. Father, uh, we thank you so much for uh, the faithfulness of Jesus. This imperfect sermon and this imperfect obedience. And yet you use the exhortation of your people to call people back to the gospel and to propel people forward in the gospel. We pray that your work would continue to be done. And all God's people said, Amen. Let's stand.